Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Dr. Bruce Gilley is a professor of political science at Portland State University. He has a new book out called The Last Imperialist, Sir Alan Burns' Epic Defense of the British Empire. It's actually a, a remarkable look at this guy's life and, uh, you know, basically as uh, a colonialist, as a promoter of colonialism. And in fact, Dr. Gilley's piece, The Case for Colonialism, I read in its entirety and marked up extensively over the weekend. Dr. Gilley, welcome to the program. Your defense of colonialism, well, let me just let you first make your case. Why should we colonize third world countries? Well, thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Well, I think today we're in a different situation, of course, because there are countries, as you say. So to colonize a country would be to, in some way, invade it, um, which you may do with their consent. I mean, we do have interventions, humanitarian interventions. And the last time I checked, I think the Lebanese, half the Lebanese population wanted the French to come back and rule Lebanon. But for the most part, that's not practical now because we have a world of sovereign nation states. Of course, at the time of the major second phase of expansion of European colonialism from, you know, 1824 till the 1950s, 60s, there were no countries. So there's the whole term country is an anachronism. There were territories with shifting populations and shifting uh, leaders and groups that that systematically enslaved and subjugated and displaced others and colonialism was a way to try and bring a let's say a more enlightened form of human interaction to these places so colonialism was that you know having a government is better than not having a government so i mean we tried this with afghanistan and iraq essentially for 20 years, you know, we're going to show you how to do it, right? We're going to impose our form of government on you, you poor backward people. It hasn't worked out all that well. Should California, for example, colonize Louisiana? Louisiana has, you know, hookworm rates that are worse than many third world countries. They've got infant and maternal mortality rates that are in the, in the toilet. They're, uh, you know, their governor over the weekend humiliating himself on television. If we're not going to go invade other countries anymore, if we learned our lesson from Afghanistan and Iraq, how about colonizing Louisiana? Well, sure. If the people of Louisiana wanted that, they absolutely should. And if that was something that would be workable, I mean, states cooperate a lot on stuff. And so if you want to call that colonialism, you can. I mean, I, ca I call it the, the diffusion of good governance. And the diffusion of good governance is 
always and everywhere a good thing yeah. because invariably it meets with the consent of those who find that life is better under ruler A than it would have been under ruler B. Yeah, but my objection to your piece, and I know that it was widely objected to when, you, when it was first published uh, at uh, Third World Quarterly, uh, you know, the, the editors eventually pulled your piece and you and they were receiving know, death threats, not, essentially. Not, yeah, they, they didn't pull my piece. Uh, my editorial team uh, was receiving death threats from people who didn't seem to be able to respond to something they disagreed with other than with violence and acts of censorship and cancel culture. And because of that, their staff was getting death threats. Right, I get that. And, and in pitching your book, and I'm, I'm assuming pitching your book to primarily right-wing shows, you're attacking critical race theory and saying that this is... You know, this is uh, CRT is a dangerous, closed-minded ideology, and Dr. Gilly is no stranger to its consequences, et cetera. But uh, you know, having actually read your article and spent a fair amount of time with your book, what I'm seeing is that you are glossing over or largely completely ignoring the fact that where we, you know, where and when we did go into countries, and even you know the example that you cite uh, repeatedly of Hong Kong and Singapore. Um, that when we did go in and colonize these places and civilize them, and in some cases, I think you could argue, you know, Singapore and Hong Kong were examples of uh, societies that ultimately thrived, perhaps as a consequence of that. We did it with incredible brutality. You know, we killed people. We forced our way into those places. We did it through warfare. And the implicit assumption that underpinned it was that Western civilization was the pinnacle of world civilization, and therefore it's, it's our duty to impose it on everybody else. And I think that that's, A, debatable. Um, but B, the, the other sub, subtext of colonialism is that white Europeans are the pinnacle of presumably uh, at least cultural evolution, if not actual physical evolution, which puts a horrible racist taint on this entire project that you're proposing. Yes, yeah, so you'd think that Adolf Hitler would have been a big colonialist, right? But no, actually he hated colonialism. Why? Because colonialism was the opposite of what you just said, Tom. Colonialism was based on the premise that everyone has the potential because everyone is imprinted with the same universal template uh, to be rich, to be democratic, to be rights abiding, to be prosperous. Oh, come on, Bruce. Uh, really we, thought, we did not really colonize countries that had no natural resources. Colonialism was all about getting the oil out of Nigeria, getting the gold actually, out of actually, Liberia. Actually, well, why, why, so why, why, would the United, why was the UK in charge of Jordan? I mean, there was not a drop of oil there. Or did they, were there, were there uh, oil explorers? Because Jordan borders the river down. that is, or the, uh, the waterway that is necessary to get the oil out of Saudi Arabia. Uh, I see. So that's kind of reductive Marxism, right? And you can always find a reductive Marxist argument for anything. But uh, no, colonialism spread not at gunpoint, but largely with the consent of the peoples that were colonized. If that was not the case, there's no way it would have Or at least the consent of their corrupt elites. And been there because the number of white officials on the ground was vanishingly small, roughly one one hundredth of the number of officials we see in contemporary states. And, you know, you talk about violence. Well, violence is relative, Tom. I mean, uh, what, what you don't pay attention to is the endemic violence in these societies before the white man showed up because you have a very Eurocentric perspective. You're not interested in black on black violence or Arab on Arab violence. How do you know what I'm interested in? 
or well, because you just explained we went in there with violence and and but what? But how can you be we not did. paying attention? We did. To, I was to, in Uganda to, in 1980 during the civil war against Idi Amin. I saw the tail end of British colonialism. I saw it up front and personal. I, I, I worked in, in the Namalo prison state. farm where we had thousands of people dying of starvation every single day. Uh, you know, I, I'm that, familiar that, with colonialism. You have no idea about me, Dr. Gilly. Was that the British government putting those people in prison, or was it Idi Amin putting those people in prison? Idi Amin came out of the British government pulling out in 1956. Oh, I see. So every bad thing that happens after colonialism is attributed to colonialism, and any good thing that happens after colonialism must be because of domestic virtue and indigenous strength. And I didn't say either one of those two so things. So, so, yeah, Idi Amin is a monster, and he's a monster of African tribalism. And he was a direct... Using the British the system. ...that the British system was thrown out of Uganda as it was thrown out of all the countries in Africa probably 20 or 30 years before the time was right. Now, the countries that were able to have the British system longer managed to hold on to those institutions. I would pay attention to uh, the British Caribbean, Barbados, Bermuda... Bahamas, Belize, even Jamaica, Trinidad, these places flourished. Why? Because they had a good 200, 300 years of creating those norms of British constitutionalism, the rule of law, the protection of property. It's not people from the Bahamas on our southern border trying to get over the Rio Grande this morning, Tom. It's people from Haiti. And why is that? Because they threw off the French colonial system. It was a slave state, right? So clearly something new was going to need to happen there. But, you know, this is not a this is not a they got uh, wonderful white story of, of human emancipation when you have a country like Haiti that has struggled for centuries because of its premature independence, whatever that meant, which really just meant handing over to some black elites who were able to repress. You don't think it had anything to do with having to pay reparations to France for, for the loss of their slaves for nearly 100 years? No, I don't think it did, because uh, lots of countries have paid reparations. Germany paid reparations after World War I. It's, it's done fine. So, no, that doesn't... Yeah, it's a completely different thing. Before. I mean, well, they, I, I, France I, I, drained a poor colony, a f poor former colony, right up until, what, the 1950s, wasn't it, that uh, Haiti was paying reparations to France for the revolution of, what, 1880-whatever it was, 1804, 18... I forget the year. Yeah, we've been shelling out money in foreign aid hasn't made us poor you know actually it's probably made the countries we gave it to poor and probably france should have not taken reparations because you know foreign aid makes so let me figure out how this works one of the things that you suggest is that we should consider building outposts around the world as basically demonstration projects and correct me if i'm mischaracterizing any of this and that hong kong would be an example of that hey here's here's where the british built uh, all the infrastructure they built built systems of government and governance, and it worked wonderfully, and now that should infect China. Obviously, uh, it kind of worked the other way around, um, although I think, you know, you would probably argue that China has adopted a lot, some of those systems from Britain. But how would this work? Is, I mean, is this a serious proposal? Yeah, it, it actually, there's, there's a lot of these examples around, and, and, um, and they don't get much attention because it's not the white man doing them, but I'll give you an example. There is a South Korean industrial zone in Bangladesh, which is now basically a small city. It's basically a South Korean colony just north of Dhaka. It was set up by the Korean government as a kind of demonstration project. They took a huge area of land of what was former state factories that had all gone bankrupt. They took it over. They refurbished it. 
It has massive amounts of South Korean investment and in and now other investment from other parts of Southeast Asia as well. It has a governance structure that is jointly run by the, the Korean, basically the Korean Investment Corporation, Overseas Investment Corporation. It has got schools. It's got its own security force. It's basically so what happens power. when the Koreans yeah. pull out? Well, hopefully when the Koreans pull out, it'll be much like what happened with, you know, the case of Shenzhen across the border from Hong Kong, which is that enough of those institutions have lasted that when the Chinese finally, you know, stopped giving that... Shenzhen is now a police state. Protection. I've been there. <laughs> it's a police yeah, state. Yeah, I've been it's there too. Yeah. yeah. The, the new book, The Last Imperialist, Sir Arthur Burns' Epic Defense of the British Empire by Dr. Bruce Gilley of Portland State University. At Bruce D-G-I-L-L-E-Y is your Twitter handle. Dr. Gilley, thanks for dropping by and talking with us. Thanks a lot. Yeah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Should America start practicing imperialism? I don't think so. Unless it's on Louisiana. Tom Harmon here with you, Dave, in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Look, um, in the long run, we cannot, Democrats cannot support even soft empire. That's what your last guest was talking about when he mentioned South Korea. Right. Look, Tom, it's a big topic, so I don't want to go into it. But while it is. we can't even do we can't even do soft empire right now. All right, and and that that a lot of that's being pushed by corporations, which is my second point. We need to, in the long run, stay loyal to labor. And we have a problem in the Democratic Party. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but it's this shareholder versus stakeholder discussion that Democrats are having. That's not, in the long run, we got to realize what these corporations are. And that brings me to my short-term solution. I was in Wyoming, happened to be listening to some right-wing, or just local, but it yeah, it was Wyoming, Tom. Mm-hmm. I mean, it tended to be right. <laughs> and they were talking about the cattlemen, small cattlemen are losing money off their beef, where big corporations, big ag is making a bunch of money. And basically what they were say, talking about is, is corporate price fixing. Yep. These uh, corp- I don't buy the shareholder versus stakeholder argument. I don't buy it. So Joe Biden has got to, like, really push, continue to, you know, don't lose faith. Joe Biden's doing the right thing. But he, um, yeah. he's just got to keep doing yeah, it. I get it, I, I, and I agree. Dave, thank you for the call. Steve in Lake Elsinore, California. Hey, Steve, what's up? Hi, Tom. This morning on Marketplace, uh, they were talking about uh, what's causing this little bit of softening of the stock market. And what they're saying is there's a hedge fund in China that owns a lot of American real estate, and uh, they're having like, a liquidity problem. Right. And if the Chinese government doesn't come in and back them up, this could cause a break, you know, they're cracking the dam. You know, this could be, you know, because yeah. I think everybody knows. A lot of defaults here in the United States. I think that that's a big piece of it. That's the story that the press has, has decided to run with. But I think that uh, the larger piece that's largely being ignored is that over the weekend and all of last week, Mitch McConnell threatened to crash the economy by refusing to raise the debt ceiling. Oh, very much. This is a convergence of two very bad things. This is yeah. a perfect storm kind of situation. Oh, yeah. And they're completely oh, ignoring McConnell and, and, and our Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, saying, you know, this yeah. is going to bring it all down. And the Republicans are just going full speed ahead with it. Steve, thanks for the call. You know, yeah, spot on. <laughs> it's very, very interesting. We'll be right back. We'll continue with your phone calls right after this.
You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. What happens to the Republican Party when, like, you know, a significant percentage of their electorate has died or gotten really deathly sick from COVID? Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Our book club book today is Last Boat Out of Shanghai by Helen Zia, the subtitle, The Epic Story of the Chinese Who Fled Mao's Revolution. This is from the prologue, Shanghai, May 4th, 1949. Bing sat up straight in the pedicab, gripping the hard seat as the driver cursed and spat. She watched with alarm as his feet, clad in sandals cut from old tires, seemed to slow to a snail's pace just when she most needed speed. This stylish-looking young woman had imagined that her last hours in Shanghai would be spent waving farewell from a ship's deck to envious onlookers below as a river breeze gently lifted her dark hair, just as she'd seen in the movies. After all, she was about to leave China's biggest, most glamorous, and most notorious city. But now, with the imminent threat of a violent communist revolution, she was running away again, along with half the city's population, it seemed. And instead of standing at the rail, exchanging smiles with the ship's other passengers, she was stuck in traffic, terrified that she wouldn't reach the Shanghai Hongkuo Wharf in time. That would spell disaster. She lurched forward as the pedicab driver stood on the pedals of his three-wheeled cycle and came to a stop. Around her was a sea of other pedicabs, rickshaws, cars, buses, carts, and trucks, all screeching and honking, their drivers yelling every manner of obscenity. The cacophony reverberated against the walls of the stone and concrete canyon of Nanjing Road. Bing was no stranger to Shanghai's mayhem, but she'd never seen anything quite like this. Of all times to be stuck in such bedlam, on the very day she had to get to the riverfront, the date set for her departure from this desperate city. She'd sewn her floral print quipois for this special occasion. Each careful stitch had captured her growing anticipation. With her oval face, big eyes, and full red lips all crowned by a tiara of black permanent waves, the 20-year-old might have been mistaken for a coy Shanghai poster girl, but for the panic in her eyes. Like her, everyone in Shanghai seemed to be in a frenzy to escape, to use any means to get away from the impending arrival 
of the communists. But unlike those who are still clamoring for a seat to anywhere, Bing was one of the lucky ones. She possessed a precious one-way ticket out on a ship to America. Finally, the driver managed to break through the crush. He harangued everyone in his path, shouting, move along. She didn't blink at his choice of words, which came as naturally as breathing on Shanghai's streets. She didn't care as long as she got to the wharf. The ship's smokestacks came into view just past the stately Astor House Hotel and the towering 19-story Broadway Mansion's apartments, where the Xinjiao Creek meets the bend in the Waihangpu River, the last major tributary of the mighty Yangtze River, before it joins the East China Sea. Massive granite buildings, all in European style, lined the signature waterfront boulevard and docks. To the foreigners, this prime section of waterfront was known as the Bund, from a Hindustani word meaning embankment. The Chinese called it Waitan, meaning outside or foreign shore, a reference to the foreigners who once ruled this proud imperialist showcase of Shanghai. British and American businessmen had wrested away the best sections of the port city with the full support of the government. Land and sovereignty had been ripped from China, spoils of the opium wars that had forced the narcotic onto China 100 years before. Everything about these monuments to international capitalists and pale big noses seemed foreign, including the British Big Ben chime of the giant clock tower over the customs house. Soon it would be up to the communists to decide what would follow, what would happen to these grand stone edifices. Shanghai was China's most modern, populist, and cosmopolitan city. One of the leading metropolises of the world, the Paris of the Orient was also home to tens of thousands of foreigners who were despised as imperialists by the Communist Party and its leader, Mao Zedong. The city was the launching point for major inland routes and international traffic, whether by boat, plane, train, or wooden cart, making it the epicenter for the massive exodus in the late 1940s. Stoked by the anticipated communist victory over the nationalist government headed by Chiang Kai-shek, panic and terror had first infected the wealthiest, most educated, and most privileged classes and sent them running in what they fully expected to be a brief exile. It was assumed that the communists would target the rich and the pampered in the same way that the Bolsheviks had gone after the czarist white Russians, many of whom had come to Shanghai as refugees from that 1917 revolution. No one knows precisely how many people fled Shanghai during the early years of the communist revolution. Scholars and journalists have estimated that more than a million people set off from or through that port city. Many of those who ran for the exits belonged to the city's capitalist and middle classes, who presumably had the most to lose under the communists. These two groups comprised about 5% and 20%, respectively, of the city's 6 million residents, or about 1.5 million people. On the other hand, the remaining 4.5 million who made up Shanghai's majority saw no need to escape. They included Shanghai's industrial workers, coolies, drivers, the destitute. But it was not only members of the upper classes who fled. They were joined by old regime loyalists, from high nationalist government officials to lowly foot soldiers, as well as those who simply got caught up in the frenzy or were especially fearful. Unfortunately, there are no records of the exodus since the retreating nationalists destroyed as many documents as they could, while the incoming communists inherited a country in such disarray that no accounting to the departures is known to have taken place. Last Boat Out of Shanghai by Helen Zia. Bob in Ormond Beach, Florida. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind? Whenever you presented a counter of thought, he, he, he dealt in complete 
black or white. It was all or none. But when you said that we did things to the culture of the country we went into, and he goes, oh, so you're saying, no, you said what you said. Right. Uh, it, we, any country that is doing colonialism goes into another country, destroys the infrastructure, the political structure, the societal and the cultural system, and rebuilds it in its own image. And then when they're forced out, the country they leave is a shell that implodes. Typically, not always. And he's got three examples. So Singapore, Botswana, and there was another one where basically the transition when the, when the imperialists or colonialists left, um, the people who they, in whose hands they left the country uh, made that transition. And I would love to do a deeper dive, and he doesn't in his, in his work, uh, as to why that might be, although I, I'm guessing probably his book, which I didn't read, you know, I just skimmed it, um, probably gives us some clues. Um, but, you know, there's this larger moral question, and that is, you know, what gives us the right to decide that our particular civilization or, or idea of civilization or governmental structure, for that matter, particularly now that it's so badly contaminated with neoliberalism, is the best? I mean, you know, yeah, okay, we can put men on the moon, but, uh, you know, you've got a planet that's on fire, it's melting down. We're looking at the destruction of planet Earth as a consequence of our idea of the ideal civilization. Is this really what we want to spread around the world? And, but I also loved his, his, his defense by basically saying that he feels that intrinsically the white European civilization is the best, and we... Yeah are going to going to deliver that to the savages right yeah in this uh, in this continent the the indians had a full division of culture i mean many of our democratic institutions are based on things that were developed in the Indian culture. The, a good chunk of the Constitution is based on the Iroquois Confederacy. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. And I mean, this worldview is not just racist, but culturist and in, in ways that are just breathtaking. Um, so anyhow, thanks. Thanks a lot for the call, Bob. Good, good okay. points. All. Alejandro in Miami. Hey, Alejandro, what's up? Hello, Tom. I was just surprised to hear that uh, your earlier guest, Dr. Gilly, say that colonialism and imperialism was a good thing. I'm like, what? Is yeah. this the 19th Well, you know, Africa? tame the savages. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's their shtick. It's such nonsense because colonialism is inherently exploitative. It is I, I savage itself. It's savage, right? How are you going to convince me that you're going to come and conquer people without their consent and tell me it's a good thing? I mean, that's kind of dumb, in my opinion. And I just wanted to offer an example of that. For example, uh, we talked. To, well, I don't know if he talked about this on, on, uh, in his book, but the Aztecs, for example, Mexicans. Mexicans, how they see the Spaniards. Let me explain it to you. I went to a museum in Mexico City many years ago. Um, my family lineage, my mom's Mexican, my dad is Cuban, right? Uh, so. I went to a museum in Mexico many years ago as a child to Mexico City, and the way they depicted, obviously, the Spanish conquering them was a bad thing. They did not see it as a positive because to the Mexicans, the Spaniards or the foreigners who came to conquer their native land, and so they identified more with the Aztecs that they were the victimized, they were colonized. Hmm. So while, yes, they appreciate the fusion of culture between the Spanish and, Me and Mexican culture, obviously you have 
good cuisine and all these other, you know, good cultural uh, things that derive from that, just because you get some benefits from colonialism doesn't mean the whole idea of colonialism, colonialism is a good idea. It's still a bad idea. It started with violence. And just let me give you a historical context. With Hernan Cortes, when he went to Mexico, that was even illegal under the Spanish crown. He was told specifically by the Spanish governor in Cuba, do not go to Mexico. You're not authorized to go there. So already when he went, when he sent his expedition there, we went with his expedition to Yucatan, that was already an illegal move. And then months later, the Spanish crown obviously found out about that and sent a force to kind of intercept him and stop him from trying to go, go rogue, trying to colonize new places. And then, of course, Cortez, you know, outsmarted that army that was trying to come to, you know, conquer, to beat him and forced them to join his uh, conquest of the Aztecs. So, and, and the wow. fact that, you know, yeah, yeah, and of course with the Aztecs, of course, the Spaniards are very smart like other Europeans of exploiting intertribal rivalries. How do they do that? The Aztecs were a big empire in that region, and they subjugated many, um, you know, towns and cities like Yucatan, where the Doña Maria, the Indian the, from Yucatan, was one of the Mayan tribes there. You know, they exploited those, that, that, the, hey, you're, they're subjugating me. You guys are going to help me out, right? Okay, let's go kick some Aztec butt. So the Spaniards only won because they had thousands of Native American allies who had a lot of beef with the Aztecs. So, of course, they stood to benefit from that. But uh, at the end of the day, all they did was exchange one colonial master for another. So, except maybe some Indian elites like the, of Indian chiefs who were their allies, of course, benefited from that arrangement, but not the Aztecs. They yeah. were screwed. They were slaughtered. They had even a smallpox outbreak. Of course, I killed the wife out the city before the Spanish. Well, like during the whole conquest of the, like the two-year process where the Spanish kind of conquered, and of course, you know, smallpox came in for the assist to help them, you know, subjugate the city. You know, so the Europeans yeah. have the biological warfare along with the regular warfare to win against, the, you know, um, unconquered people. Yeah, it's, it's astonishing, Alejandro. Back in 1980, um, uh, Dick Gregory was uh, on the board of directors of the children's home that Louise and I started up in New Hampshire, and the comedian, the black comedian. And he and I were flying to Uganda. Well, actually, we were flying to Germany on this, on this leg. We were on our way to Germany. And it was the middle of the night. We were wide awake. We were <laughs> sitting here, you know, uh, we just had dinner. We were drinking a glass of wine. And we were talking about colonialism and what was going on in Uganda, you know, where we were going to end up. And he turns to me and he says, I don't understand why America always thinks they have to run around the world trying to shove democracy down people's throats at the barrel of a gun. And then he mm -hmm. pauses for a minute and he says, when you got something good, you don't have to force it on people. They will steal it. And, and I think that that's the point is that, you know, self-determination is pretty important stuff. And, and uh, yeah, there's going to be, you know, evil people who rise up and take over countries. And, you know, occasionally we might want to think about intervening, but be careful what you ask for. I mean, look at country after country where, you know, we helped overthrow, uh, you know, a democratically elected but moving socialist government in Iran. We did it in Iraq. We did it we, in multiple South American countries. We certainly did it in Chile, the CIA you know, overthrowing, I believe it was Allende and installing Pinochet. <laughs> I can't think of any examples of U.S. intervention like that, you know, where we thought, okay, we're, we're not going to invade. We're just going to, you know, tweak the things a little bit where it didn't blow up in our faces. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's crazy. Alejandro, thanks for the, uh, for the history lesson about Mexican history. A lot of that I didn't know, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Good talking with you. 
You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's the place where smart people get their news. Dave in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hey, Dave, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's on your mind? I was calling about what the Democrats need yeah, to do. Yeah, go to, for it. Basically, stop appearing weak. Stop calling the Republicans their friends. Stop saying, having the House, the Speaker of the House say that she wishes the Republican Party would be more organized and stronger. The people who vote for the other party look at that as weakness. They don't start to intellectualize or, or hear what Democrats are saying or even take us seriously because they're taking that as weakness. So basically, and I think it's, it's because of the donors. I think donors are telling Democrats to be weak and they're telling Republicans to be strong. And it's all theater. So, so you think that the donor class is trying to sabotage the Democratic Party at the same time that they're trying to support the Republican Party? Am I, is, am I, am I understanding you? Your position correctly. Right, the very the donors are very uh, donors typically contribute to both parties, and they give they give different messages to that each has, party. Well, that's true of corporations uh, broadly, but uh, or most corporations, but they're mostly lobbying for their own narrow interests. You know, uh, Comcast is giving money to Democrats and Republicans to prevent net neutrality from ever coming back again. For example. Um, you know, presumably. I, I don't have some inside information from Comcast about that, but I know that they've lobbied over the years. Well, um, if the Democrats but, could just forcefully argue for, for their policies. Um, yeah, nothing you know, wrong there, with that. There was the, the $3.5 trillion was the compromise. You know, so don't, nobody should be saying that, that this $2 trillion... Well, that's that, largely that, forgotten. That, I mean, the fact that, that the original proposal was $6 trillion is literally not even right. included in the sentences that they use in the media. Uh, which is a real tragedy. Dave, I, 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 I think I Anybody that goes yeah. against that should pay a political price. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Dave, thank you for the call. Jessica in Chicago. Hey, Jessica, thanks for watching Free Speech. Hi. What's up? Hi, Tom. I agree with both of you. They've got to say it was $6 trillion. They've got to get that out there. Yeah. And, Tom, we're always on the same wavelength. Um, the Republicans want to force these births on women that need these abortions when they have over 120 children that are orphans because both parents have died from COVID. Is that in Texas or nationwide? Oh, shoot. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're not sure where? Yeah. I, I think it is in Texas, but yeah. um, I sh oh, I'm sorry for the last part of not having that. No, no, it's all good. If you can, if you can find that stat, oh, I have not yeah, seen that I'll stat. If you can find it and tweet it to me, I'd love it. I'd love to have it, Jessica. Okay, and on good news, my daughter went to Georgia and helped her girlfriend move out of Georgia and come back to the north where the sanity is. Wow. It, yeah. But that's one less Democratic voter in Georgia. True, but um, it's a woman, and I think, I think you're going to see a lot of women move out of the south. I really do. Yeah, which is, which is unfortunate. I mean, instead, I think that we need to stay and fight and take these states back. I, I really think that the Republican Party is shrinking so rapidly right now. People talk about, you know, Trump's got huge popularity among the Republicans, but the number of Republicans themselves have shrunk dramatically. And I, I'm actually pretty optimistic about 2022. 
Um, but, you know, stories like that. Jessica, thanks for the story and thanks for the information. And I, I hope you can track down that uh, statistic. In fact, I could base a whole rant on it. Joe in Tampa, Florida. Hey, Joe, what's up? Hello, Mr. Hartman. I'm calling here because I have a question now about what happens to the Republican Party. Yeah. I feel like they, for a long time, they are using this voter suppression. I think likely because they know that their believers, the suppression is like the equalizer for them. Yeah. And are willing to do this, I, I believe, so that the economy will go bad and hinder any progress for the President Biden's term. That's correct. Republicans always try to crash the economy when there's a Democrat in the White House. They, you know, they tried it with Clinton. They shut down the government twice. They tried it with Obama. Yeah. They shut down the government. And, and it hurt our credit rating worldwide. It caused all our interest rates to go up. It slowed down the economy. It was a terrible thing what they did to Obama. And now they're, they're trying to do it again to, to Biden. And it was big news on Friday. Today, I realized that there's this, uh, you know, Chinese hedge fund that is having troubles that, you know, is influencing our market as well. But frankly, the market started slipping last week when the news came out that Mitch McConnell said that there would be not one single Republican vote to raise the debt ceiling. That was his declaration of war on this issue. Exactly. And, and I believe that the Republicans and the corporations are taking over at a faster pace than before. And now they don't even need voters if they continue. Well, they're voters. Their, their, uh, yeah, they're killing their, their voters and, and, uh, and their believers. Yeah, and their voter suppression strategy is, uh, Joe, it is essentially their admission, their confession that they can't get enough votes to hold power and therefore they've got to stop people from voting. And it's a sign of a party in crisis. The Democrats are not trying to suppress the vote. And, you know, nowhere. And they haven't tried to suppress the vote since the 1960s, the Democratic Party. The Republican Party has been all about suppressing the vote ever since the Reagan Revolution. And they've gotten very aggressive about it since, since 2000, when Jeb Bush threw, threw 90,000 African-Americans, 97,000 African-Americans off the voting rolls in Florida, just in time for his brother to win an election there by 500 votes. So, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Same thing in Georgia and uh, same thing in Texas. This is happening in red states all across the country. It's the only way Republicans can hold on to their power. And that's why we need to blow up the filibuster and pass, you know, legislation that will outlaw essentially this. Joe, thank you for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party by John Nichols. This is from the preface. Political parties have histories. In many countries, these histories are told with reverence and respect for their roles in breaking the bonds of colonialism or battling fascism, in defining the character of a country or in opposing malignant tendencies. Not so in the United States. The histories of our major political parties are rarely told. Rather, parties are understood as mere shells into which great men and women climb when they need a place on the ballot or a separate fundraising apparatus. Dixiecrats segregationists decamp from the Democratic ballot line to the Republican line, transforming both parties. The youngest of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal Democrats lived long enough to watch in horror as the rules they had established to protect Americans from Wall Street speculation were undone by Bill Clinton and his new Democrats. 
The path I took in writing this book began with the consideration of how the Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln and the radical Reconstructionists of the 1860s became the party of Donald Trump and the xenophobic white nationalists of the 2010s. I wondered how it had changed so drastically that it made a lie of Dwight Eisenhower's 1954 observation that, quote, should any political party attempt to abolish Social Security, unemployment insurance, and eliminate labor laws, you would not hear of that party again in our political history, end quote. There are no more Eisenhowers in the Republican Party, and that explains a lot. The supposed adults in the room, the Paul Ryans and Mitch McConnells, undoubtedly recognized the absurdity and awfulness of the Tea Party agenda in 2011, yet they adopted it largely without question. They thought they could control the right-wing base of their party. Instead, they forged a party that was ripe for takeover by Trump, a charlatan who wore his bigotry on his sleeve. If the Republican Party bartered off most of what was noble in its history long before Trump began to seriously consider a presidential bid, the hustler who wrote The Art of the Deal merely closed that deal. But what of the Democratic Party? In the 2010s, the Democrats were as inept and visionless as the Republicans were calculating and cruel. When Trump assumed the presidency after the 2016 election that the Democrats should have won by a landslide, bolstered by the Republican Congress that was ready to follow the lead of a desperate and damaged narcissist, the crisis came into focus. It was not the Republican Party that was ruining our politics. Rather, the lack of a coherent and appealing opposition to the Republicans was the problem. So what were the roots of that crisis? It is too shallow to blame Hillary Clinton or the bumbling strategists that mounted her 2016 campaign. It's too easy to point an accusatory finger at the consultants and candidates who kept losing to the empty suits that Mitch McConnell was running for the Senate. Something much deeper was amiss. The Democratic Party had abandoned what was visionary in its past to become the managerial party of Bill Clinton and the surrender caucus that showed up whenever the party was in a position to prevail. For some, it was sufficient to see President Clinton and the New Democrats as the source of the disease. But that was also shallow. The Democratic Party began pulling its punches long before both Clintons arrived on the scene. The more I traced the roots of the decay of a party that could not beat Nixon or Reagan or George Bush or George W. Bush or Donald Trump, the closer I got to the last days of Franklin Roosevelt's presidency and to the great unraveling that began when Harry Truman was maneuvered into the 1944 Democratic ticket by the party bosses and Southern segregationists who knew FDR was dying and wanted to bury the New Deal with him. Truman, who was willing to compromise with the bosses, established a pattern of ideological and strategic concession by the party that extends to this day. But Truman didn't just grab the nomination, the vice presidency, and the promise of the presidency in a vacuum. He came to power after a struggle. The more I focused on that definitional fight, the clearer it became that the lost soul of the Democratic Party was a man, and his name was Henry Wallace. Wallace has been so thoroughly written out of our popular history that he's often confused with a politician who was his polar opposite, Alabama segregationist George Wallace. Even those who knew bits and pieces of the good Wallace's story imagine him as a tragic figure who, after a brief moment of New Deal glory, was ruined by the excesses of his idealism. We're reading from The Fight for the Soul for the Democratic Party by John Nichols.
Wallace was an idealist, arguably with Eleanor Roosevelt, Wendell Wilkie, and A. Philip Randolph, one of America's greatest idealists among the cadre of dreamers who remade America in the late 1930s and early 1940s. Indeed, the bare-bones biography of Henry Wallace is sufficient to identify him as one of the most striking political figures in American history. A progressive Republican editor and farmer from Iowa who supported Roosevelt in the 1932 campaign that realigned American politics. Wallace became an original member of FDR's cabinet and turned the, turned the Department of Agriculture into the roaring engine of the New Deal. He so impressed the president that in 1940, Roosevelt forced the Democratic Party to accept Wallace as his running mate in an audacious bid for a third term. John Nichols is the author of the book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Edu slash podcast. I have uh, largely successfully avoided over the last week or so discussing the uh, the national hysteria of Hollywood level pretty white girl missing. It's like, oh my God, the whole nation needs to mobilize. In an area where 710 indigenous people, mostly girls, are also missing, or have been declared missing in the last 10 years. And there's, you know, dozens of them that are still missing. But, you know, they're not like somebody pretty enough to show up on, you know, in a Hollywood movie. Or by, you know, by the standards of white culture and Hollywood, quack, quack, quack. So, you know, at, at the one level, in my mind, this whole story is a story of white privilege on steroids and, and how our media is still obsessed with pretty white girls to the detriment of anyone who doesn't, you know, didn't, wasn't a member of the lucky sperm club, basically, who didn't, who, uh, or unlucky, uh, depending on how you look at it. But now that her body has been found, the Gabby Petito, and that her fiance, Brian Laundry, or Landry, L-A-U-N-D-R-I-E, is uh, on the lam down in Florida, on the run. He took off with a backpack, said, see you later. And who knows where he is. And we're looking at now the police video 
of when the police pulled them over because uh, boyfriend Brian had been wailing on now dead Gabby. It appears that this is more than just a missing white girl story. And the reason I, I want to discuss it, and you and largely can't avoid it, of course, is because it's been all over the media. Now, it was a made-for-TV story. I mean, they, they were using social media to document their trip, and, you know, they were this cute couple, and everybody was liking it, and they were getting lots and lots of hits on whatever it was, whether it was Facebook or TikTok or whatever. And then suddenly it stopped, and so now part of, you know, the Find Brian has moved into social media too so it has become not just a wyoming and florida story or even a national story it's become an international story and while the whole white privilege aspect of it i think was the biggest part of the story up until the last day or so what we're learning now is that this is also another example of the male privilege of beating the crap out of women and suffering no consequences, which is what happened when the cops pulled them over and they, you know, they wanted to make sure she was okay. And she, she said what abused women often say when they're threatened with violence by their, by their intimate partner. Uh, it was my fault. It was my OCD that made him hit me. And so now what we have is, an, is a domestic abuse turned into domestic murder case in all probability. Obviously, he hasn't been tried in a court of law. He's not been convicted. So you could argue that I'm premature in saying that he killed her. But I think that had he not killed her, he would have behaved very differently. And so there's a killer on the loose in all probability. But he's not just a killer. He's one of these men who wants to completely control the woman in his life, who considers her his property. And that grows out of this culture of misogyny, this patriarchal male culture that is like so baked into America, and not just America, the world. Let's just be honest about this. This, this goes back to the beginning, the development of agriculture, basically when you needed more people to work on the farm. And so women started becoming basically like, like, uh, like cattle, you know, produce more babies, woman. And, you know, families had 11, 12, 13 children. Whereas in, in the pre-agricultural societies, what we would call indigenous aboriginal tribal societies, I, I, I remember reading one of uh, Jefferson's diary entries where he's going on at length about how impressed he is that the Native Americans who lived around him that he knew very well uh, typically had two to three children in a family and that they would space them out five or six or seven years apart. They understood birth control and they weren't, you know, just treating. In fact, the women were the only ones who could vote in four out of the five Iroquois Confederacy nations. But we've been living in this post-agricultural era around the world in pretty much every culture around the world, whether it's in Asia, Africa, Europe, North or South America, it doesn't matter, Australia, in these patriarchal societies. And the, the essential core of patriarchy is that women are property of men. 
And even the laws designed to protect women are like property laws. Like you can't set fire to your own house, you can't, you can't beat up your wife. But there's that your in there, your property. And I'm hopeful that the media will begin to discuss this in the appropriate context. Because this is an ongoing and serious problem in our culture. It has been forever. I mean, we used to, it, it used to be so baked in that when, you know, in the 1950s, late 50s, early 60s, when Jackie Gleason was doing his TV show, The Honeymooners, I think it was on CBS, that whenever he disagreed with his wife, Alice, he would, he would make a fist and put it in her face and yell, to the moon, Alice! Like, I'm gonna punch you so hard, you're gonna go to the moon. And she'd back down. And there would be a laugh track. And Americans would go, oh, look at that, he got his way. I think we're a little less tolerant of that now. In fact, I, I, obviously I know we are as a society, yet it is still happening. And women get trapped in this situation, and in some cases, men. I mean, this happens. This happens. Uh, okay. Louise and I years ago had a had a good male. Fr Actually, we knew both. We it was a couple. We knew them both. And the man in the relationship confided to us one day at lunch. I still remember it quite vividly. It was on the back deck of our house in uh, in uh, uh, Georgia, in Roswell, Georgia. Confided to us that his uh, living girlfriend had been beating him up pretty badly. And he couldn't defend himself and he wasn't quite sure what to do about it. And it was like, whoa, how do you counsel somebody in a situation like that? And we didn't, you know, other than saying get away from her, we didn't know, and he was unwilling to do that because she was the person who gave him what he needed. I mean, this happens, this isn't just women, but. 90, probably 95% of the time it is. It's a real thing. And it, almost always when you have a spousal murder, it was preceded by years and years of this kind of violence or control. And this is the kind of thing, I, you look at the incel movement that has aligned itself, joined itself at the hip with the Trump movement. Because Trump's a man's man and he knows how to treat women, right? He's been through three wives. He's raped over 20 women. I mean, he's, this is a man's man. And these incels, these involuntary cells, these, these young men who have not yet had sex and they're blaming women for it and so they are killing them in some cases. But they've got their own message boards, they've got their own groups on Facebook, they've got, I mean, you know, it's, it's like a movement to blame women for the fact that they're still virgins. And sometimes they, you know, they become violent and these are the people who, if they ever get in a relationship, God help the woman that gets, who's in that relationship with them because what they're declaring right from the beginning is that because they were born with a penis, they believe that all people who were not are their potential property. 
just like, you know, Eric Trump probably believes, based on his behavior, that because he was born with massive amounts of money, everybody around him is his potential property. Certainly Donald does. So I just I just wanted to flag that again. I'm, I, I've been I've tried to avoid this story because it's just so it's such a sad example. You know, when there's in the same I mean between 2011 and 2020, 710 indigenous people went missing in the same place where Gabby went missing. 85 percent were kids. 57 percent were female. 21 percent were missing for longer than 30 days. And only 11 percent were white people. This is the Tom Hartman program. So there you go. Anyhow, my rant on that. Diana in Sanford, Maine. Hey, Diana, what's on your mind today? Hey, brilliant Tom. How are you? I'm well. How are you today, Diana? Good, good. Without getting into a whole bunch of family uh, crisis, which is very sad, but I grew up in the 50s uh, with the schizophrenia uh, and other family-related uh, very tragic situations where my older brother and sister and I, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, were involved with uh, family uh, and adult protective services. Mm-hmm. Um which I can say mental and drug issues are combined. Uh, But at that time, uh, institutions were necessary uh, that separated our family in many ways. Oh, my. Um, And um, as a result, um, uh, being uh, watching you for at least a year now, I just recently hearing about Carter and Reagan's involvement I could see um, a big difference in uh, the institutionalization changing for uh, my mom to being in group homes, which was so much better for In the 1970s, from Carter's program? Yes. Yes. And then Reagan's um, uh, shutting down all the services. Yeah. And uh, main care and all all this stuff uh, forced my mom to be homeless which uh, contacting, uh, we family pulled together, contacting uh, Olympia Snow, uh, writing letters, mm-hmm. doing everything. Yeah. Um, and, and she was homeless. And it was only for my other sister's connections that got her into a nursing, uh, nursing home. But it was, it was a freaking, excuse me, that wasn't a swear word, but an, a nightmare. Yeah. So I'm just saying, and then another family member was beaten together to death because he was put in, put in the criminal system. Oh my! Because mental illness and drugs, if they're not treated mentally, they will take care of themselves. They say they, that about half of all the people in prison right now are actually mentally ill. Now, that, whether prison made them that way or whether they were that way when they first that, came in, I right. don't know. And but. I was involved in in trying to get him help. And all I was told was, if you can't treat, if you can't get him off alcohol, we can't help you. And that's all I heard. So what I look at is that from Hitler's time, from eugenics, from before FDR, all we heard was, all all I see is there's a a white nationalist right wing 
They don't want to pay taxes. They don't want to help anything. It's population control, just like COVID. Everything hmm. is. Yeah. They they don't they don't want to help. And you got Cruz. He's going to like filibuster. The, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Any, any, he'll do, he'll do anything he can. Yeah, Diana, thank you for sharing your story with us. It's a tough one. Karen in Muskogee, Oklahoma. Hey, Karen, what's up? Um, I heard you. Uh, first of all, hi. Uh, I'm living in a red state, and I heard you talking about that young woman who disappeared, and they found her body. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just got a little practical advice for young women, and I'm not putting it on them. But they need to think about this. <clears throat> oh, a woman uh, will make the mistaken idea that even if a guy is drinking, doing drugs, beating them, cheating on them, that their love will save them. That that their love will change them, and especially once they're married, he will change. Right. And we know that's not true. That's correct. It never it's happens. A, it's it's a delusion. Yep. And uh, it only gets worse. Um, for example, that young girl. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 so uh, my thing is, people, I'm sorry, do not change. Yes, there's an occasional drunk that will get on the wagon, or uh, a druggie will walk away from it. Don't walk from these men. Run yeah. for your life. Yeah. Amen, Karen. Okay. Amen. Wise okay. advice. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks. And thanks for the message there from Oklahoma. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.